Over the last several weeks here at Whitefields, we've been uh, studying the book of 1 Samuel. We've been having a great time going through it. I hope that you have been enjoying it as much as I have. I've found it to be just a very rich uh, and great study. But I have to tell you, if you've been enjoying it up until now, uh, the best is yet to come. Because this morning, we are meeting one of the most wonderful, engaging figures in the entire Bible. Uh, the only person in the Bible of whom it said that he was a man after God's own heart. This man, of course, is David. Uh, when Jesus was alive, he was known by several names, but he was never known as the son of Abraham. And he was never called the follower of Moses. But you know what title he was known by? He was known by the title, the son of David. David, he's one of the greatest men in the Bible. In fact, his name is mentioned over 1,000 times on the pages of the scriptures. That's more times than Abraham, more times than Moses, more times than any other person in the New Testament other than Jesus. And today we're going to meet this man and we're going to begin to talk about what it was that made him so special. The title of today's message is, A Man After God's Heart. So if you'd uh, follow along with me in chapter 16, let's begin in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Over the last several chapters, what we've uh, been reading about is how the first king of Israel uh, was a man named Saul. And from all outward appearances, Saul had the great, everything that it took to make a great king. He had the makings of, of a king. But inwardly, Saul did not have a heart for God. And over time, this lack of a heart for God revealed itself in Saul's life and in his actions more and more. Saul stopped caring about what God wanted. Saul stopped caring what God said. And he just started blatantly going his own way. Blatantly disobeying God and doing foolish things and, and even things which were harmful uh, for the nation. And because of these things that Saul was doing, how he had gone on his own way and turned his back on God, we read in our study last week that God rejected Saul as king over Israel. And God told Saul that he was going to replace him with somebody else. He said, I'm going to replace you with a better man, a man after my own heart. Well, here we read uh, in chapter 16, verse 1, that after that happened, Samuel the prophet, who was the guy who delivered that message to Saul, uh, Samuel the prophet goes home and, uh, and he mopes. Basically, that's what he does. He goes home and he has a case of the mopes. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the Lego movie. Uh, I obviously have, and I have to say I loved it. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, though, maybe you've heard the song, right? Have you guys heard that song, Everything is Awesome? I, I love that song, actually. So um, I, I even have a graphic here for you that pretty much describes my life. So my son loves this song, right? Everything is awesome. And he, he, uh, he like, watches the YouTube videos, and he memorizes the song, right? Even, like, the, uh, like the hip-hop rap part of it. So he, me he memorizes all the lyrics, and he'll walk around the house, you know, sit in the car, and he'll be singing, everything is awesome. You know, everything is cool when you're part of the team you know and uh, he'll be saying like everything is cool when you're living the dream right so anyway he loves this song right but the other day uh, he, he got upset because we made him do something they didn't want to do so he's sitting in his car seat in the back back seat of the car and he's just moping right and he's and we hear him kind of mumbling to himself everything is not awesome everything is not cool when I'm living the dream you know 
And that's pretty much where Samuel's at, right? He's living the dream. He's a prophet of God, but he's sitting around and he's bummed out. He's disappointed and he's sitting at home saying, you know what? Everything is terrible. Everything's a bummer. Everything is not awesome when I'm living the dream. The nation's falling apart. Everything's a mess. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who, who are feeling that way about something in your life right now, you know? Everything is not awesome, right? But notice this. God speaks here to Samuel and he says, Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? How long are you going to sit around and dwell on the past and be bummed out? He says, it's time to move on, Saul, or time to move on, Samuel. It's time to get up and get going. It's time to move forward and move on. You know, there is a time to mourn. There's a time for being sad over things that have happened. There's a time when, when it's the right time to look at the past and, and mourn over the things that have happened that are, that are bad. But you know what? There's also a time when it's time to stop dwelling on the past and, and cut that out and move on. Do you know that? There's a time to move forward for what God has for you next. Let me tell you this. If you get stuck continually mourning the problems of the past... The disappointments of the past, you can easily miss out on what God is doing in the present. That's where, Samuel, or that's where Samuel's at. And God tells Samuel, Samuel, it's enough now. It's enough mourning. I want you to get up and I want you to fill your horn with oil. You know what that meant? Uh, they would use a horn kind of like a flask or a bottle that they would carry liquids in. And when Samuel heard this message, fill your horn with oil, he knew exactly what it meant. He knew that this was meaning that God was ready to anoint the next king of Israel. He would fill that horn with oil and that oil was going to be poured on the head of the man who would be anointed as the next king of Israel. As a symbol, as a sign that God's spirit was upon that person. So this was a very exciting thing for Samuel to hear and God tells Samuel I want you to go to Bethlehem to the house of a man named Jesse now interestingly uh, for you Bible scholars here Jesse is the grandson of a very famous couple in the Bible Ruth and Boaz just their their books right before first Samuel here notice what it says at the very end of, of verse 1 God says go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons I've provided for myself. You know, Saul, if they would have had a People's Choice Award back in that time, Saul would have won the People's Choice Award. He was the people's king. He was the kind of king that they wanted. And God is saying, okay, I let you guys have the kind of king that you wanted, one who was about image and appearance. But he's saying, now I'm going to give you the kind of king that I want. I'm going to show you what my kind of king looks like. Let's read on in verse 2. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So God says to Samuel, I'm going to show you who I've picked to be the next king. I want you to anoint him, notice he says, for me. The first king of Israel was a king for the people. He was the people's choice. But this time around, God is going to show them the kind of king that he wants. A man with a heart for him. Check out the next thing we, or, or check out actually, I want to go back to this. What's the first thing we read there in verse 2? We read this. That basically Samuel says, I'm afraid to do this, God. I'm afraid to go down and anoint this new king. Why? Because he's worried that Saul is going to kill him. 
Let's just dwell on that for a little bit. Saul, he's afraid that Saul will literally kill him, right? Now, now think about this. What does that tell us about where Saul is at in his heart at this point? In the last chapter, right, we saw how Samuel the prophet gave Saul this message. Saul, You've turned your back on God and now God has rejected you as king. And God is going to raise up somebody else to be king in your place. And what happened when Saul heard those words? Saul, who up until that point had really not cared very much at all what God thought or what God said. All of a sudden, this man who has been just unapologetic, who's been totally proud and and stiff-necked, this man begs he gets down on his hands and knees and he starts begging Samuel not to do this he says change your mind Samuel no please Samuel I'm sorry I won't do it again I I won't make those same mistakes please just don't take the kingdom away from me right this man who's been stubborn stiff-necked unapologetic about his disobedience to God so much so that he even built a monument to himself to celebrate his disobedience to God now this man is on his hands and knees clutching Samuel's garment and begging him not to take the kingdom away from him but what does Samuel say to Saul he says no Saul it's too late it's too late the decision's been made God has spoken it can't be undone this is this is just how it is Saul you're gonna have to accept it but what do we see now we see that Samuel is now afraid for his life He's afraid that if he goes and anoints another man as king, as he told, Samuel, or told Saul that he was going to do, he's afraid that if he does it, that Saul is going to kill him. Saul is going to kill him. Saul does not want to give up being king. That's, that's pretty much the, the story of the rest of 1 Samuel. Saul does not want to give up being king, even though he's been rejected by God. And he is prepared to do whatever it takes to stay in power, even if that means killing somebody, even if it means killing a man of God. What a sad state of affairs, right? What a sad state of Saul's heart. Like I said, this is what the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is basically going to be about. Saul trying to hold on tooth and nail to this position as king, even though God has rejected him. Even though God is raising up somebody else. This would be kind of like if your boss called you in uh, tomorrow morning and, and fired you, right? Said you blew it, you're fired, right? But you're like... I'm sorry, I'm not going to accept that. And you just keep showing up for work every morning, right? Parking in your parking spot, going to your office, because you will not accept the fact that you've been fired. And whenever anybody tells you, hey, you got to stop coming to work, like you don't work here anymore, you just get angry at them and threaten to kill them, right? And then when your replacement comes, you don't let him in your office and you chase him down and then you try to run him over in the parking lot. That's Saul. That's basically the story summarized for you of the rest of 1 Samuel. Saul is willing to do whatever it takes to remain in power, even if that means killing people. Later on, when Saul figures out who it is that God has chosen to replace him as king, Saul is going to use all the resources at his disposal to kill that man. He he is the king of Israel, right? He has the army of Israel at his disposal, and he's going to send a whole army after this man to kill him. Why? So he can remain in power. You see, this sense of desperation, this sense of he, he's got to do something, he's got to kill this man. You know, even, it even gets to the point later on where Saul will tell his army, he will say, I want you to catch that man, but when you catch him, I want you to hold on to him because I want to kill him with my own two hands. You know, the story of Saul is really the story of deterioration. 
This is not a heart after God's own heart. This is a story of deterioration. You know why? Because Saul didn't start out that way. Do you know that? He didn't start out as this rabid murderer trying to hold on to power. He actually started out, uh, if you remember, back a few chapters ago, Saul started out with a, a spirit of humility. He started out of being anointed by God and chosen by God. He had the spirit of the Lord came upon him. He received a changed heart from God. Do you remember that? That's the same guy here. You know, it's really easy for us to look at this man, Saul, and say, man, he's a bad dude, and I sure am glad that I'm not like him. I sure am glad that I'm like David. You know, have you ever noticed this, right? We've got the people in the Bible. We've got like the people wearing the white hats and the people wearing the black hats, right? We've got like Saul. He say he's wearing a black hat. He's a bad guy. We've got David. He's wearing a white hat. And which person do we tend to naturally associate ourselves with? Of course, I'm the good guy. Well, I certainly wouldn't be the bad guy. But if you, if you have that opinion, I want to tell you, you're missing the point of the story. You're missing the point of the story. This story isn't about saying, hey, look at Saul. He's a bad dude. Good thing you're not like him. The, the point of this story is, is the reason it's chronicled like this is that it wants us to see that each and every one of us has the potential to be like Saul. You have the potential to be just like Saul. You know that? This story is to be a warning for us that if you don't keep diligent watch over your heart and make sure that you stay in a place of humble submission before God, well then you can slowly drift away from the Lord in your heart to the point where eventually you end up where Saul ended up, just totally bent on doing your own thing apart from God no matter what the cost. You know, so many times we look at this story and it's so easy for us to see what would have been the right thing to do. Do you notice that? As we read the story, we're like, Saul, don't do that. No, Saul, not that. Come on, man, stop. Just obey the Lord. It's simple, Saul. Just do what God told you. Saul, just repent. You messed up, but it's not all gone. Just repent, Saul. Just turn back to the Lord. Things will get better. But he doesn't do it. It's like, it kind of reminds me of that scene. I was trying to get the video for you, but it didn't work out. It's, you ever seen that scene in Austin Powers where he's driving the uh, steamroller, right? And he's going towards that guy, and the guy says, stop, you know? But then you see that he's like 40 feet away from the guy. Like, he has every chance in the world to just get out of the way of the steamroller. But he doesn't. He just says, stop, and then eventually he gets run over. Well, you know, I mean, it's like ridiculous, right? But that's almost like what it's like looking at Saul. Saul, stop doing it. Saul, get out of the way. Saul, stop. But he doesn't. He had every chance in the world, over and over, to not end up where he's ended up. But he didn't do it. And here's the point of the story. You, too, have the potential to end up like Saul. But you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to go down the road that he went down. And it's so important for that reason that we keep this, this humble submission before God, this place of humility, this heart that's ready to repent and turn back to the Lord whenever we, whenever we take the wrong fork in the road, you know? You know what's interesting? In the book of 2 Samuel, long after David, the, the man after God's heart, long after David has become king, uh, one of his sons is going to lead a rebellion against him. His son is called Absalom, and Absalom leads a rebellion against his father David and tries to take the kingdom away from him. He, he usurps him, right? 
But David's reaction to the possibility of losing his position as king is very different than Saul's reaction here, right? Saul's ready to kill anybody. He's willing to do anything to hold on to power. But David's attitude, his attitude was, whatever you want, Lord. If you want somebody else to be king, then that's okay with me. If you want me to do something else, I'll go work at Walmart. You know, I'm good with it. But whereas Saul is trying to hold on to this, this power with this iron grip, right? We see a totally different attitude in David, the man after God's heart. David just holds it with an open palm, what God's put in his hands. You know, one of the really key differences, I think, between these two men, and I think that this is something that God wants to challenge us about this morning as well, is this issue of where they find their identity, where they find their identity. Look at Saul. Where does Saul find his identity? Saul finds his identity in his position. In, in how he looks in the eyes of other people. But David, as we'll see, this is a man who finds his identity in who he is in God's eyes. And that makes a world of difference between these two men. So let me ask you this question. Just ponder this for yourself. Where do you find your identity? What is it that defines who you are? What is your identity wrapped up in? You know, a lot of times you can find out where people are, are basing their identity or finding their identity by the things that they say about themselves when they talk about themselves to other people, right? The way that you answer that question, that question of who are you, that reveals the things which you believe give your life uh, meaning and direction and purpose, if you would have asked Saul, Saul, who are you? You know what Saul would have done? He would have stuck out his chest and said, I am the king of Israel. That's what his identity was wrapped up in. And so when that got taken away from him, do you realize that he freaked out, right? He could not imagine. He didn't want to imagine life apart from that because his entire identity was wrapped up in it. To the point where he's willing to do anything to hold on to that. He's even willing to kill people. David, on the other hand, so different, right? If you would have asked David, David, who are you? He would have said, I'm one of God's sheep, man. I am the servant of the Lord. See, David found his identity in who he was in relation to God. And that made a world of difference in David's life compared to Saul. With David, whether he's tending the sheep or whether he's fighting in the army or whether he's leading the nation, his sense of identity is the same. It doesn't change, right? If God wants him to be king, that's cool with him, but he doesn't need to be king like Saul does. If God wanted to take the kingdom away from him, David was okay with that. If God wanted someone else to be king, David could handle that because you know why? It would not change who he was. It would only change what he did. You see the difference? It wouldn't change who he was. It would only change what he did. He would still be the servant of the Lord. He would just be doing that in a different capacity, in a different role. So let me ask you again, what about you? Where do you find your identity? What is the thing, what are the things which you believe give your life meaning and direction and purpose for a lot of parents you know it's their kids uh, for a lot of professionals it's their job or their position at work right for some people it's a hobby or some skill that they have something that they're good at 
But the question for all of us, and this is really what we see here with Saul, the question is this, what happens if, like Saul, you lose those things? What happens if you lose those things which you have built your identity upon, which you have wrapped your identity up with? What happens if you lose that job or that position? What if your kids aren't around anymore? What if you can no longer do that thing which you look to to give your life meaning and purpose and direction? Then who will you be? C.S. Lewis famously said this. He said, do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. For many people, Saul's a great example of this, their happiness, their whole identity is based on something which can be easily lost, which can be taken away. And when and if they lose that thing, their whole world falls apart. That's what we call despair, right? But let me tell you this. If you base your identity like David did, on who you are in God's eyes, on who you are in Christ, then you will have a bulletproof soul. I'm going to say that again. If you will base your identity on who you are in God's eyes and who you are in Christ, then you will have a bulletproof soul. You may get knocked down, it may hurt, but it won't destroy you. I got together with a guy this week. Uh, he's planting a church in Denver. And, uh, you know, he wanted to get together because he knows that uh, I've been through the whole thing before, planting a church. And, and I told him, you know, the biggest piece of advice that I can give you is this. Uh, it, it's something I had to learn for myself the first time I planted a church when I became a pastor. It's this. Don't let your identity get wrapped up in what you do. Make sure that you find your identity in who you are in Christ. Because what happens is this, uh, you know, and I think this is true of, of any occupation or any position. If your identity is wrapped up in what you do, well then when things are going well, well then you feel great about yourself, right? You feel like you're pretty awesome, even to the point of, of becoming pretty proud of yourself, right? But when it's not going well, then what happens? You're just destroyed. You're a wreck. You're just a terribly depressed and distraught, you know? Instead, you need to find your identity in who you are in Christ. You know why? Because that is unwavering. It doesn't change. And that, ultimately, is your true identity anyway. In Christ, you are redeemed. You are chosen. You are a son of God, a daughter of the king. You are a beloved of the Father. That's not going to change, right? And I really think that's true of all occupations, whether you're an artist or a CEO or whether you're an athlete or a, a parent. Don't let who you are be defined by what you do. Rather, find your identity in who you are in God's eyes, who you are in Christ. Paul the Apostle said this in, in Philippians chapter 3. He said, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, if only I may gain Christ and be found in him. Man, I love those words, the last part, to be found in him. That's what I want. You know, before Paul the Apostle became a Christian, he had a lot going for him. He was educated. He was influential. He had a promising career path ahead of him. It was all laid out. But you know what? He gave up all of that to become a Christian and follow Jesus. And looking back on that later on in his life, years later, he says, you know, all the things that I had going for me, 
All the things that I gave up to follow Jesus, you know what? They were worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him, the surpassing worth of knowing him. And he says this, the only thing I want more than anything else, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him. That is a statement of identity. Do you realize that? I want to be found in him. That is where Paul has determined to find his identity. Not in his career, not in his achievements or accolades, but in Christ. You know, what do you think Paul the Apostle would have said if you would have asked him that question? Paul, who are you? What do you think he would have said? Well, we don't have to think very hard about that because he said that as much, you know, in his letters over and over. And one of the things that he would often say about himself is he would introduce himself and say, I am Paul. I am a bond servant of Christ. You know what a bond servant is? A bond servant is a slave whose freedom has been granted to him, but he has chosen to remain in the house of his master as a servant because there's no place he'd rather be right? That's the picture of Saul. This is who I am. I've been redeemed. I've been set free, but I have chosen to be the servant of the Lord by choice, right? Let me encourage you in this. Find your identity not in what you do, but in who you are in Christ. You know, the movie Chariots of Fire um, is a story of two men who raced for Great Britain. It's a true story, actually, uh, of two men who raced for Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. Two men were named Eric Little and uh, Harold Abrams. So Eric Little was a Christian. In fact, he had been a missionary in China before returning to, to, you know, train for the Olympics in Britain. Uh, So both these men, Abrams and Little, right, they were trying very hard uh, to win gold medals. But the difference was uh, that Abrams was doing it out of this need to prove himself. And the reasons for their running, their attitudes towards running are revealed by the various things that they say throughout the movie, right? At one point, Abrams, he, he says this very revealing line. With a tinge of fear in his voice, Harold Abrams says, you know, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That was his view of running. This is his purpose in life. He has to justify his existence. Little, on the other hand, he had a totally different attitude about running. He says at one point, you know, with a sense of joy and a sense of freedom, he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And a lot of that movie, you know, it's based on this fact that this man, Harold Abrams, sees in this Christian man who's so free because his identity is not tied up in, in winning a race or anything. He's just free to run and he enjoys it. And this man, Harold Abrams, the movie's about how he's looking at this man and seeing this freedom that he, he actually enjoys running, you know. Eric Little, you know, he was a Christian, and and part of the story that's not told in the movie is this, that he was a Christian, and a a few months before the Olympics, he had found out that the gold medal race, which was uh, for the 100-meter race, which was his main race, he was expected to win gold in this race, uh, it had been scheduled on a Sunday. And so, uh, as a Christian, he decided that he was not going to run on a Sunday, Even though he'd been training for this race for four years, he decided, I'm not going to run on Sunday because I want to go to church and honor God. And and so it's a true story. Eric Little dropped out of the race, which he had been training for, for four years so that on that Sunday, he could go to church. 
And he went to church at, there in Paris at a local church and he was, he, he was a guest speaker. He preached the sermon while the race went on uh, across the city. Now some people looked at that and some people, maybe even you here today, you look at that and say, come on now. There's 52 Sundays in a year. You can go to church the other 51 Sundays. I mean, is God going to do something bad to you if you just miss church one time? I mean, come on, right? Can't you just skip church once so that you can win the Olympics? I mean, come on, right? But see, Eric Little, this is the thing about him. Eric Little, he didn't need to win that medal. He didn't need to win that medal. It wasn't the most important thing in his life. For him, honoring God was much more important than anything else, including the Olympics. For Harold Abrams, though, I mean, he couldn't imagine doing something like that. His whole identity was caught up in running that race. But, but for Eric Little, running was just something he did. It didn't define who he was, right? He found his identity in who he was in God's eyes. And another part, again, not in the movie, but this is the, the true story of Eric Little. One year after the 1924 Olympics. By the way, he did race in other races in those Olympics, and he won two medals, one bronze and one gold. The gold was in the 200 meters, which was a race that he had not really prepared for at all. But he entered into it because he dropped out of the 100, and he won the gold in the 200 meters. But one year after uh, the 1924 Olympics, Eric Little retired he shocked the, the sporting world when he retired from running altogether this is a man who just won a gold medal in something he didn't even prepare for right and he drops out one year after winning a gold medal he, at the height of his career he's the best in the world and at the height of his career he drops out of running why so he could return to China as a missionary People were shocked, they were surprised, they were scandalized. This guy's the best runner in the world. He could have been rich, he could have been famous, and he gives up all of it to go to China and be a missionary. And Little's response, because people asked him, what are you thinking? His response was, I'm running a different race, which is much more important. You know, that's how David was about being king. He loved doing it. He loved serving God in that capacity, but it didn't define who he was. His identity was based on who he was in God's eyes. And for that reason, you know what? He had a bulletproof soul. And that's how you and I need to be about the things that we do. You do them because God has made you good at them. Do them. Do them because God has made you good at them. Do them because you feel God's pleasure when you do those things which he made you good at. But don't let those things define who you are. That's the trap that Saul fell into. And look at where he's at. It is destroying him. That is the rest of this story. It will destroy him even more. Find your identity in who you are in God's eyes. Who you are in Christ. Let's carry on. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Now these guys are afraid of Samuel. Why would that be? Well, if you remember what happened at the end of last chapter, he, uh, he kind of cut up that guy Agag. You remember that? Uh, it's pretty brutal. So you can understand these guys see this guy come to town and they're like, um, you know, you come peaceably? And he's like, yeah, I come peaceably. Uh, I've come to sacrifice the Lord, verse 5. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. 
So Samuel goes down to Bethlehem and, and he just has like a, a, a kind of big sacrificial meal, you know. Uh, when a sacrifice was made for sin, that sacrifice would have been completely consumed on the altar. But when a sacrifice was made for fellowship, it was kind of like they would sacrifice an animal to the Lord and then they would all eat the meat. It was kind of like a big community barbecue as a great event. So Samuel's down there and he has this big community dinner, right? And he tells uh, Jesse and his sons, I want you guys to be there. Uh, make sure you're there at this dinner. And so surely, you know, they're a little bit like weirded out. Like this guy just shows up out of the blue, wants to make dinner for us. Kind of weird, right? Over the next several verses, if you'll, if you'll read along with me, what happens is this. Samuel is there at the dinner. Jesse is there with seven of his sons. And, uh, and Samuel knows that one of the sons of Jesse is the one who he's going to anoint as the next king of Israel. So he's, he's just waiting. He's looking at him. He's eyeing him over, you know. And, uh, and he's waiting for God to say, this is the one. In verse 6, we read that Samuel, he looks at the oldest boy of Jesse, the oldest son, Eliab. And he says to himself, surely this is the one. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. This is a good choice. He looks like he'll make a great king. Wow, you know, what a great moment. I just found the next king of Israel. But in verse 7, God speaks to Samuel and says, no, Samuel, he's not the one. And God says this phrase, which really is a summation of the heart and soul, the message of this book. The Lord says to Samuel, I don't want you to look at his outward appearance or the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know, all of us, even Samuel the prophet here, we have a tendency to judge people based on their outward appearance. But God's saying, that's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking beyond that. I'm looking at the heart. I see that which no one else can see. And the person God has chosen to be king, we'll see, this is somebody who nobody would have chosen. Uh, Because by all outward standards, he didn't seem like kingly material. But God wasn't looking at outward appearances. God was looking at the heart. And I'll tell you what, we too will do well to judge people less by their outward appearance and more by the substance of their character. Samuel goes down the line and one by one with each son, God says, nope, not him, not him, not him, not him. Seven sons, each of them, God says, no. And so Samuel's confused. Wait a second, I thought that you said, God, that from one of the sons of Jesse would be the next king of Israel. So he realizes, wait a second, maybe there's a son who's not here. And so he asks him in verse 11, Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, well, well, I guess there is one more son. You know, he's the youngest, but he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him here. This mystery son, have you noticed that until this point, We haven't heard his name. He's been totally nameless. He's just like this mystery man, right? This man after God's heart. This mystery son who's totally unnamed. You know, that he's out watching the sheep. Now, watching the sheep was a servant's job, right? This was considered menial work, uh, you know, menial labor. So the fact that David is out there watching the sheep, it tells us two things about David and his family. First of all, it tells us that Jesse's family was not particularly wealthy because this was a job that usually would hire a servant to do. This means that they didn't have the money. They couldn't afford to hire a servant, so they just have 
one of their kids do it. And you know, you go down the totem pole and who's at the bottom? Well, the youngest and he doesn't have any, you know, anybody to, uh, any seniority over anybody. So he's stuck doing the job that nobody else wants to do. Secondly, this also tells us that David was not very highly regarded by his father and his brothers. They don't even bother to mention him by name. They say, oh yeah, there's the, you know, the youngest. You know, once you have eight kids, you start forgetting names, I guess. And uh, David, he's out doing the work of a servant, right? This lowly, humble work. This was a man, think about this, the man whose name is mentioned in the Bible more than anybody else, a man with a destiny, one of the greatest men in the scriptures, and he's out doing the work of a servant, doing the job that nobody else wants to do. This is a job that most people weren't even willing to do because it was thought of as kind of the basest kind of, of manual labor. Most people thought that this kind of work was beneath them, that they were better than this. That's why in this family, again, this job was given to the youngest son because he had nobody to pass it on to himself. They don't even invite this guy for dinner, right? He's totally of low regard even in his own family. But you know what? There are blessings that come with keeping the sheep. Do you know that? There are blessings which come with keeping the sheep. When you're keeping the sheep, you have time to think. Many of the psalms are songs which David wrote and sang during his time that he spent keeping the sheep in ambiguity. David was out uh, keeping the sheep and he would look at the glory of God's creation around him and he would say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. That's Psalm 19, which David probably wrote during this time as a shepherd boy, unknown to anybody else. Or how about Psalm 8, which David also wrote during this period. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would care for him? You know, this shepherd boy alone watching the flock during the night as he looks up in the sky he sees thousands of stars and he doesn't just see stars but he sees a pattern in the Milky Way and he's just overwhelmed by the vastness of God's creation the vastness of the heavens and he realizes how big it is and he says God is even bigger than that right God created all of it and that God who created all that he also created me and he cares for me who am I God that you would have regard for me, that you would love me, that you would take care of me. During this time that David was watching the sheep, he was developing a deep, intimate relationship with God, right? It was just him out there with the Lord, keeping the sheep, and David was drawing close to God, spending precious time with God that nothing in his life would ever replace. David was out watching the sheep, and as he was doing that, God was forming in him a deep work in his heart. During this time, David was developing the heart of a shepherd, right? As a shepherd, David was learning that sheep need to be taken care of. They need to be led, right? They need help. They need a good shepherd. And as a shepherd, David came to understand the heart of God, right? He understood that God also was his shepherd. And during these years, David probably started singing that song, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. David realized that's what I do with my sheep and that's what God does with me. You see, it was during his time with the sheep in obscurity, doing menial, mundane labor that David's heart was shaped into the heart of someone who loved and had a deep relationship with God.
God called David a man after his own heart. Do you know when God said that? Do you know when God said it? it was back in chapter 13? Do you know what was happening at that time? Saul had just begun his rebellion against God and, and God says, you know what? There's, there's a guy out there. He's a man after my own heart and someday I'm gonna make him king. Think about that. At what point did God call David a man after my own heart? After David was anointed? After David became king? After David became famous? No. David was a man after God's own heart when he was in obscurity, when he was in ambiguity, when nobody knew who he was, when he was just working out in the field with the sheep. And that's something to take note of. You know, another thing that watching the sheep taught David, it taught him how to trust God in the midst of danger. It wasn't all just sound of music, right? Like dancing on the hilltops, singing songs. As a shepherd, David would have to face wolves and lions and bears. Sometimes his life was on the line and he was terribly frightened, but David learned how to trust God when things aren't going your way, right? When, when you're scared. Keeping the sheep was probably something that David never really wanted to do. It's probably not what he would have chosen to do had he had a choice. But it was through that time of keeping the sheep that God built in him a shepherd's heart. And I wonder if David ever had sweeter fellowship at any other time in his life than those times when he was on the hills keeping the sheep. God was making David into one of the greatest men who would ever walk this earth. But you know where it all started? It started with a menial job that he didn't want to do. I don't know if there's any of you who can relate to that, you know. But you know what, for David, this wasn't a time of waiting for the next thing. You know what this was? This was a time of God forming in him a heart after his own. What about you? I'll just wrap it up there. What about you? Where does God have you right now? Whatever situation you're in, uh, I want you to know this. Do not miss the ways that God is wanting to form your heart through that situation. You know, David didn't have to learn these things. There were plenty of shepherds who didn't end up with a heart for God. But David heard those things and he learned those things that God was teaching him through that situation. Wherever you are, I guarantee that God has you there for a purpose. There are things that he wants to do in your life and in your heart to form in you through that situation a heart for him. Would you stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you. Lord, for your heart towards us. Lord, we thank you that you have the heart of a shepherd towards us. We thank you, Lord, that considering the vastness of the universe, Lord, that you care about us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us a heart after your own. Lord, whatever it is in our situation, Lord, the things that you wanted to teach us through it, Lord, may we be receptive to those things. May we have and receive that heart after your own heart, Lord, that you wanna teach us and form in us through the places that you have us. And Lord, we just uh, give ourselves to you over again. Lord, we don't want to end up like Saul. Lord, would you form in us hearts that are humble and submissive. Lord, hearts that are repentant, hearts that love you and seek you. Lord, as we sing this next song, Lord, would we sing it to you from our hearts and come back to you in our hearts and become people after your own heart. In Jesus' name, amen.